Maybe having a, another technical difficulty. That's okay. It's okay. It's interesting because it really does fit in with the sermon this morning. And encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 29. We're not going to read it. I don't have it on my prompter, but I encourage you to follow along. We're going to be hitting some of the high points of the scriptures this morning. Before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, for trials. I thank you, Lord, for interruptions. I thank you, Lord, for reminders to depend on you and not on our technology and not on how we think things should go, Father. And Lord, we just give this morning continually and constantly to you, Father, and seek your face in it, Lord. God, we praise you and we thank you for this text. We thank you for the lessons you have for us this morning in this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we pick the story back up, we're continuing with the life of Joseph. And if you remember, last week, Joseph's brothers had went down to Egypt because there was this great famine in the land that Joseph had predicted from his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. And they went down to get grain, and they, un, unbeknownst to them, they were getting this grain from the brother who they had so many years ago, 20 years ago, had cast into that pit. And we pick it back up this week because after their trip to Egypt, they're going back up to Jacob. They're taking their grain, and we know that their hearts had begun to change. We saw hints of that. But they go back up to their father, and they told him the whole story. They told him what happened, how this man had confronted them and accused them of something that they were not there to do, that they were not doing, that they were innocent of. And they told him the story, I'm sure, of how he put him in prison and how he threatened to keep all of them but one and then how he changed his mind and sent them all back but one. Told him this entire story. And I'm sure they told him that one of the, one of the boys had, one of the brothers had found his money in the neck of their sack and then when they get back and open the other sacks to dump him into the holding area, they realize all of their money has been returned. And the scripture says, it repeats it again, that they were scared, that they were afraid. And they were afraid because they didn't understand what was happening. And that brings us into our first point in our outline, and that is the denial. And it's Jacob's denial. In verse 36 of chapter 42, it says, You have bereaved me of my children. And this bereaved means to be deprived of a loved one. You've deprived me of my dear children. He says, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin from me? All this has come against me. This was a lot for Jacob, wasn't it? He's lost one son. As far as he knows, he's dead. Another son is in captivity, being held ransom so that his dear youngest son would be brought back. That's a lot for somebody to process. That's a heavy weight. Well, Reuben, he steps up and he makes a promise and he says, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. He's wanting to go get this food because he knows how important it is to the family. And he's making a pledge. He's making a promise. Going to verse 38, Jacob says, no. He says, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead And he's the only one left. 
Why is Jacob so scared? Why is he so tore up? Because this man, who we know is Joseph, we know it's Joseph, they don't know that, he hasn't asked for Benjamin's life. He's not said that he's going to take his life. He just asked for him to be brought down. You see, it wasn't just about Joseph. He wasn't afraid of what this unknown man was going to do to Benjamin. He even says in the scripture that he was afraid of the journey. What, what happens if something happens to Benjamin on the way down? And that leads me to believe that he had sheltered Benjamin. I, don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised to, to find out that he never let Benjamin out of, out of his sight after he lost Joseph. But he doesn't want him to go on this journey because he's afraid of what could happen on the journey. He's afraid of what this unknown man in Egypt will do to his youngest son. Why does he want my youngest son? What's the motivation behind this? He's got a lot of questions. You see, Jacob made a mistake with Joseph. He sent him out on his own to go deliver that message to his brothers. And Joseph never came back. And Jacob is determined not to let the same thing happen with his cherished son. And he's convinced that under his power, with his humanity, that he can protect Benjamin, that he can keep him safe. Jacob was holding tightly to Benjamin. He goes on to say, his brother is dead. Now wait a minute, Benjamin's brother is dead? There's ten other men standing there who are also a brother to Joseph. But Jacob's not acknowledging that. What's he doing there? He's continuing to display the preferential treatment toward these boys. He has sinfully held Rachel and her children higher. We talked about that when we started the study of Joseph. How he selfishly and sinfully held them higher and the tragedy that it brought. The sin that it, that it enabled, the sin that it magnified. And he's continuing it. He's holding t- these two boys as more precious than the other boys. What an ugly attitude. And it's continuing to cost him. Can you relate with Jacob? Do we hold tightly to things of this world? Where was Jacob's faith? Was he trusting that God had control of this? Or was he determined that he could control it? We already said that he's trying to hold on. He's trying to keep control. He's trying to keep Benjamin safe. Do you think Jacob had heard the stories about his grandpa Abraham putting his father Isaac on the altar? I'm sure he did. Do you think he understood the faith of his grandfather? I think he forgot it. He so badly wants to hold on to his boys that he's trying to do it under his own strength. Now, did Abraham always have that faith, that great faith where he was willing to sacrifice Isaac even though it made no sense to him? No, he didn't. If you remember the stories... When he went into that foreign land with his wife, Sarah, he convinced the king that she was his sister. And by a technicality, well, in reality, biologically, she was his half-sister. But more importantly, the relationship was that she was his wife, and if the king would have violated her, it would have brought horrible consequences upon the king's kingdom. But Abraham, with his lack of faith, wanted to protect himself. It was for the sole reason of protecting himself. If, If I tell him that that you're my wife, then he'll kill me so he can have you. He was trying to control his destiny, his circumstances. And remember Hagar. He had the promise that he was going to be made a great nation, but nothing was happening and he was getting old. So Sarah gave him 
her maidservant. And he tried to take matters into his own hands, and it cost him dearly. So no, Abraham wasn't always this great man of faith, but he did grow, he did learn, he did mature in his faith in his creator, God. And Jacob has that example. He knows the sacrifice that his grandfather was willing to make, but he's not willing to make that decision just yet. You know, it's very hard to look past our circumstances sometimes, isn't it? We've been bumped up against with a couple circumstances here this morning with microphones that wouldn't work, scripture that wouldn't play. If we allow ourselves, that can cause us to respond sinfully. But if we look at it and say, God, you know, even in this, what are you trying to show us? Circumstances can be tough. A whole lot tougher than a scripture that didn't play and microphones that didn't work. You guys have had all faced what seems to be unbearable circumstances. And if we look at just our circumstances alone, it gets pretty bleak, doesn't it? My family and I, we've enjoyed the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, My daughter has read all seven books, I think, twice. We listened to the radio theater version from Focus on the Family. We've listened to it a number of times. And there's a character in the one book, in the one drama that was entitled The Silver Chair. His name's Puddleglum. Kind of an interesting name for a character. But he is a rather negative individual. He's, as the title of the sermon would say, he's one who definitely sees the glass half empty. In fact, I'd say once you've heard this clip, you would think he would think the glass was broken and shattered and thrown away. But I just want to play this clip this morning as an extreme example of someone with a very pessimistic glass half empty attitude. Whenever you're ready to play that, Daryl. They traveled across Ettensmoor for many days. Then about the tenth day, they came to the northern edge of the moor and looked down a long, steep slope into a different and grimmer land. At the bottom of the slope were cliffs. Beyond these, a country of high mountains, dark precipices, stony valleys, ravines so deep and narrow that one couldn't see far into them, and rivers that poured out of echoing gorges to plunge sullenly into black depths. Needless to say, it was Puddleglum who pointed out a sprinkling of snow on the more distant slopes. But there'll be more on the north side of them, I shouldn't wonder. It took them some time to reach the foot of the slope, and when they did, they looked down from the top of the cliffs at a river running below them. It was green and sunless, full of rapids and waterfalls. The roar of it shook the earth even where they stood. Eustace, we'll never make it across that. The bright side of it is that if we break our necks getting down the cliff, then we're safe from being drowned in the river. Did you catch what he said? The bright side is if we break our necks on the way down the cliff, then we won't be drowned in the river. Doesn't seem like a very bright side to me. How many of us when we forget who's in control of our circumstances, can have attitudes just like puddle glums. 
how many of us fail to look and see what God is doing in the midst of our circumstances. We like control, don't we? We like to have a plan. I've shared this with you before. I like to try to look ahead and see what's going to happen and have a pretty good idea of what I think is going to happen and feel kind of confident that if I do steps one, two, and three, then number four is going to happen. That doesn't always happen. In fact, it often doesn't happen. But we do like control in our flesh, don't we? Jacob didn't believe that God would take care of his son. He had a reason in circumstances to believe that he didn't take care of Joseph in Jacob's eyes. Joseph was gone. And he was convinced that no one could take care of Benjamin but him. So what did he do? He dug in. He still had Benjamin. He had food that they just brought up from Egypt. As far as Jacob was concerned, he was good. There was no reason to submit because his circumstances weren't pressing him to any longer. Yeah, Simeon was still being held captive, but he wasn't one of those chosen two boys. So even though he had mentioned him earlier, he, he was willing to let that go. Well, the famine was still severe. It wasn't letting up. It was going to last seven years. And I, by looking at the scripture, I think we we're just about two years into it at this time. So his circumstances were about to get tight again. Because they ran out of grain. You go to verse 2 of chapter 43. Jacob comes to the boys one day and he says, Go again, buy us a little grain. Do you think Jacob, do you think Jacob forgot the stipulation? Do you think he forgot what had to be done in order for him to get more grain? That brings us to the undeniable. Jacob had just hit a wall. His entire family was about to starve to death because they had no grain. They had no food. And he knew they needed food and he knew, he knew where there was grain at to be had. And he went to his boys and just, in a state of denial, told them to go get more grain. Well, Judah reminded him. Basically, he said, you're not getting any grain unless Benjamin is with us. If we go down without Benjamin, we'll come back empty-handed. And the truth is, we're not going unless you send Benjamin. Jacob was backed in a corner. His circumstances had pinned him. And he had a decision to make. God is so faithful to teach us, so loving to teach us through our circumstances, even though it doesn't seem loving, it doesn't seem comforting at the time. He does use our circumstances to teach us and to change us. And that doesn't mean that bad circumstances are always a result of our sin. Jacob had backed himself in this corner because of his preferential treatment, because of his selfishness. But that doesn't mean that bad circumstances are always a result of our sins. They are a result of sin in general, starting with the fall. But he also uses circumstances to work out his plan. Joseph had some tough circumstances, didn't he? And they, as far as we can tell, none of them were really a direct result of his personal sin. But it was God working him through different circumstances to bring him to the position of power that he needed him in to fulfill his plan. God wanted Jacob's entire family together in Egypt and he was using the circumstances that he had brought Joseph through to make that happen. And Jacob was digging in and was not going to let that happen. No, he didn't see the big picture. 
If he would have known what was going to happen, he'd have loaded up and went down, don't you think? That's the way we would like things to happen. But the reality is when things get tough, we're actually looking for a way out, aren't we? Kids, this morning, what happens if you do bad on a test at school? Your first choice is to try to hide it from mom and dad. What if they never find out? And you delay them finding out as long as you can, don't you? I don't want mom to know I got a D. I don't want dad to, to know. I don't want to face the, circ- the consequences. And we forget they're going to find out sometime, but we'll just delay it as long as we can. If we run out of money, what do we do? Instead of tightening our belt and making adjustments, we're tempted and we often react to the temptation to borrow more money and, and, and live way above our means or to a drastic measure we may steal, we may cheat to get more money rather than face the problem that's causing the lack of money. But things get tough at work. Instead of trying to find out what God's trying to teach us, we just go get a new job, don't we? If things aren't going well with our spouse, that's easy. We'll just get out. We'll find somebody better. We live in a world where we are enabled, where we, were, where we are encouraged to take things into our own hands and also to accept no blame, to, not, to deny any responsibility. So rather than recognizing what needs to change in us, what God is trying to reveal to us, we run from it. Rather than doing the hard things that need to be done or the hard things that need to be, saying the hard things that need to be said, we run from it. We can ignore it just like Jacob was trying to do. But just like Jacob, we can only ignore it. We can only run from it for so long. And the reason we do this is because we're convinced it's not going to turn out well if we turn into it, if we address it the way that it needs to be addressed. Well, what happened with Jacob? Did he recognize the problem? Did he understand that he was in a corner? Not right away. No, when you look at the scripture, he lashed out at him. He tells him, why did you tell him that you had a brother? This is, I see now, it's your fault. You told him you had this brother, and that's why now he's asking for him. He never would have had to know. He blamed them for it. And they went on to tell him, said, no, that's not how it happened. He questioned us until he found out that we had a brother, Benjamin. They had no way of knowing that he already knew the answers to his questions. But they told Jacob, we didn't volunteer it. We didn't just walk up and say, hey, we got another brother. He questioned us until he found out we had another brother. That, it's not our fault. Going to verse 8 of chapter 43, the brothers tell him, send him with us so we can live. See, that's the reality. That's the undeniable fact that Jacob has been backed in the corner with. If we don't get food, we're all going to die. And there's food available and you have an opportunity, you have a means to go get that food. Let us do it. But what did Jacob do? Did he dig in even more? Did he continue to refuse? You know, people can be known to do that. Have you ever been confronted with someone who knows they're wrong, but absolutely refuses to admit it? Until it costs them greatly or it costs their loved ones greatly or it costs someone connected to the situation dearly. Maybe you've been the one who's refused 
to admit that you're wrong. But Jacob didn't do that. He did come to his senses to a point and realize that he had no choice but to submit to this. That brings us to the recognition. Verse 11. If it must be so, if it has to be this way, I'm not very happy about it, but if it must be so, then do this. And he gives them a list of things to do. First of all, take some gifts. Butter them up a little bit. Then he says, take double the money. You know, they gave us our money back, and maybe it was a misunderstanding. So take double that money back. Pay for the first grain and pay for the next shipment of grain that you get. And yes, take your brother. Because I know that's the only demand he's made. But take your brother. Was there anything wrong with this list of demands, or this list of instructions that he gave his sons? No except for the reality that he was still trying to be in control. He was trying to control the situation even now. What is your outlook on life here this morning? Do your circumstances look pretty bleak? I don't know all of your stories. I don't know what you're facing in life, but I I know we all have challenges. I ask you this morning, is your hope and your joy hinging on those circumstances? Is your attitude... Your joy hinging on those circumstances. If it is, you are going to be pretty pessimistic because your circumstances in some way and some, at some time are going to fail you. Last week, we prayed and I related the story to you about a lost microphone. And what a rejoicing event that was to find that microphone. What if it hadn't turned up? What if we had prayed... And that microphone had not turned up. Would that mean God didn't care? Not at all. That's not what that means. Each of us can testify to unanswered prayers. Eric laughed and said he's got a a, uh, remote lost at home. I've got one that's been lost for five or six years. It's still not turned up. I don't think it's going to. How's that for faith? Sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way that we would want them to be answered. That doesn't mean God doesn't care. In many cases, it means no for now. It means you'll understand later. But life is hard. Life's a whole lot harder than a lost microphone or a lost remote. Life brings us circumstances that can be crushing under the weight. We're going to be disappointed by outcomes. We're going to be mistreated by people who we thought were our friends. Ends are not always going to meet. Finances aren't always going to be all peachy. Illnesses are going to overcome us. They may even put us in the hospital. Loved ones are going to die before their time. And it's going to hurt like we cannot describe to anyone. It's going to hurt in ways that we didn't think it was possible to hurt. Our prayers are not always going to change these things. If we put our faith in the things and in the people of this world, we will be disappointed. The glass will be half empty. 
we will have a very negative outlook on life if we're putting our faith and trust in, in only what this world has to offer. Well, Kevin, how do we see the glass half full? How do we pr- approach life with optimism? Well, some authors and self-help authors would tell you, think positive. It's about a positive attitude. One of the ways that I've been, a, I've been guilty of it myself is to say, well, yeah, I, I, this is kind of tough, but I know people who have it worse than I do. And you'll think of somebody specific. Guess what? Their circumstances may change someday. And then how are you going to feel? When they maybe move up the, the ladder of depression above you. No, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us peace and rest to, to compare ourselves to others. It doesn't give us peace and rest to put any faith in circumstances. Where our hope and our peace and our rest comes is by putting our faith in a solid foundation. We talked last week about a change of heart. And how when we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ... God replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But even after that heart is replaced, there's still all these impurities. There's still all this ugly flesh that gets in the way. Some of those impurities go away instantly. I'm sure you guys can testify, maybe in your own life, in the lives of other people who you have seen, turn their lives over to Jesus and change drastically. What a blessing that is to see. But then each of you here probably had some sort of sin that you have struggled with for years. And you can't figure out why you can't get victory over it. It causes you to question your salvation. Am I even really a Christian if I act like this? We have our flesh to deal with. But what happens when these impurities rule our lives? We see ourselves through those impurities. Even though we have given our life to Jesus Christ and He's given us that new heart, we see life through these impurities, through these sins. And then what God does is He bumps our circumstances up against these impurities because He lovingly wants to change us and to purify us and to help us rid ourselves of these sins, these impurities. But what do we do when our circumstances bump bump up against our impurities, bump up against our sin? Instead of addressing that sin, we ignore it. We run from it. We run from whatever is bumping up against us and causing us to be uncomfortable. And we refuse to turn into it. And say, God, I see this as sin, and I want to take care of it. This is driven by selfishness. I know what you're doing, God. You're wanting to take something away from me that I enjoy, that gives me pleasure. And I'm not going to let go of it. Maybe it's pride. This is a big part of me. This is, quote, unquote, who I am. You can't make me stop doing this, God. It's not fair. Maybe it's anger. This just costs me too much, God, and I'm not going to do it. I'm angry at you. I'm done with you. Don't even try to change me anymore. I don't want it. It's a feeling of entitlement. I deserve more. I deserve better. So-and-so has, has such a good life. Why can't I have that life? Maybe it's idolatry. Where we take something in this world and we make it more important in our lives than God is in our lives. We don't want to let go of that because it is more important to us than God is in our lives. But yet when our circumstances bump up against that idol, 
we can't figure out why we're so miserable. You see, Jacob was viewing his circumstances through selfishness. It all started with him being determined to get Rachel. And then when that didn't work out, and he had to settle for Leah, he took it out on his children. And then when he finally did get sons from his dear cherished wife, he held them up on a pedestal, made it obvious to the rest of the family, and caused so much havoc in his family. And he was still struggling with that selfishness in the text we read today. What sins in your life are hindering your clear view of God's presence, His stabilizing presence in your life? What sins in your life are keeping you from realizing the true gift of His pure love? The amazing peace that comes through His mercy. The power that comes through His grace and the influence of His grace, the power of His grace in your life. What sins are keeping you from truly embracing the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control of every detail of your life, and yeah, He's allowing these circumstances to bump up against you, to purify you, to teach you, to strengthen you. Instead, we're running to, we want some instant fixes. We want just one little phrase that will change everything for us. We want somebody to just give us that answer that has been eluding us all of our lives when the answer has been there all of our lives and it's a matter of surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. But we think there's got to be an easier fix. There's got to be a quick fix and we don't have to go through that. But the truth is, there is no instant fix. Yes, when, when we give our lives to Christ, as we talked about already, there are those miraculous personality changes There are those miraculous instances where sin issues that have been advice to someone for years are just gone. But there are also those sins that we struggle with that we still struggle with after we've accepted Christ. I ask you this morning, and I'll tell you, physically, I'm healthy enough that I could run a marathon. I have no desire to. And if I tried to go out this morning and run a full marathon, I might end up in the hospital. Because I'm in no condition. While I have the physical health to do it, my body has not been conditioned, has not been prepared for it. It kind of works the same way in our walk on this earth. Am I capable of overcoming sin? All the tools are there. But it's a matter of embracing discipline. Just last night I was reminded of how I'm still very capable of sin and sinful attitudes and selfishness. I won't give you any details because it was just something so petty. But it was an amazing reminder to me of how human, and I trust me, I know I'm human. Ask my wife, she knows I'm human. But it was a reminder that God's not done with me yet. I'm being sanctified. The first step to this, it's like, Kevin, I still, how do I get there? Well, we have to do something that we're not willing to do, and we have to call sin, sin. James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, come and confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
We have to look in our lives and, and do what we're not willing to do. We have to call sin, sin. Now, on a side note, don't let your hunt for sin in your life consume you. It's like, God, am I missing something? Am I missing something? What is it? What is it? No. Pray and ask God to show you. But when he shows you, confess it. First to yourself, to him. And then in obedience, wherever he asks you to take it from there. But don't try to make excuses for your sin. Don't try to explain it away. Call sin what it is and call it sin. You say, well, Kevin, that's going to hurt. It does, doesn't it? Because it's going to be embarrassing potentially. What will somebody think of me? It's going to cost you. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a friend. It might cost you a relationship. It might cost you money. But the benefits, the rewards are so indescribable. John Piper has been putting some tweets out there recently. He's been addressing what we call our vices, things that we say we just can't stop doing. And he asked a question. He said, so you're addicted to porn? He said, so if every time you click that button to open one of those pictures, it costs you $10,000, could you stop? He said, of course the answer is yes. So can you really not stop? Or is the price just not high enough? We have a decision to make. We have a decision to call sin, sin. But surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life comes with great cost. But with that great cost, cost comes a priceless gift. Satan tries to overvalue the things of this world. He tries to keep making them more important, worth more to us in our minds, to deceive us. But as great as the cost of sacrifice is for the things we have to give up in this world, it's only because we try to elevate it to that level. The gift we receive of eternal life with Christ Jesus is priceless. So many times when we buy into the, the things of this world and, and we put greater value on them, we have what they call buyer's remorse. Maybe you've been sucked into purchasing something, you allowed yourself to get tricked into it. It seems to often happen at auctions. But then you get it home and you realize it's not everything it was cracked up to be. And how many of you have bought into things that this world has had to offer and you start walking in the deception and you realize this isn't all it's cracked up to be. But you're too proud, you're too selfish, you're too embarrassed to admit that you don't like what you bought into. To admit that what you bought into is costing you dearly. When all God wants you to do is to lay it down and to embrace his priceless gift. John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Who are you this morning? Are you a glass half-empty person? Through what are you looking at that glass? 
I encourage you this morning, turn to God and wipe that confusion away. Call sin, sin in your lives. It's going to hurt. But allow God to cleanse you of it. To lovingly, gently, patiently purge you of it. And it will come at at great cost. You'll have to give up things that you enjoy. You'll have to give up your reputation in some ways and allow God to rebuild it in His eyes. I believe there's some here this morning who run from things that God is sending to you to bump up against your sin. It takes commitment. You need to read your Bibles and learn who God is and what He stands for and what His very nature is. You need to seek to, to seek God. You need to, to learn who God is and what God expects from you. And what He expects from you is to love Him and to turn to Him. We sang a song this morning, Will Your Anchor Hold? And so many of us, we see the anchor of God. We, we embrace it from afar. And we try to hold on to that anchor with our hands, but our hands are so covered with our sins that they're just slimy and slippery. And we just keep falling off that anchor. And all God wants us to do is rest on that anchor. It's not our strength that's going to hold us there, but our acknowledgement that we need Him. Do you know who God is? Do you know what God has promised you? Do you know what the things are that are contrary to His nature? I have a question for you this morning, and I... The Lord just gave this to me as I was sitting on the front bench. And I hesitated a little to share it because I don't want to come across as scolding you. But I do want you guys to think about something. How many of you, after that tough loss Friday night, were armchair coaches? How many of you thought, well, if we just would have done it this way, or if they they would have put this player in or, or ran this defense or this offense, that we could have won that game? And you've built up your knowledge of the game. You've spent hours watching high school games. You've spent hours watching NBA games. And you've educated yourselves. How much time are you putting into learning who God is? You can sit down and have a discussion about what could have been in that basketball game, but how many of you feel comfortable to sit down and say, this is what God expects. This is who God is. This is how much God loves you. Or how many of you run from those discussions? You know, we offer different things here at this church where you can sit down in a small group, small groups tonight. And again, I reiterate the invitation. Anyone who wants to come to our house tonight, you are welcome. Just give me a call, give me a text. We have Sunday school class that you can go to. We have DTP that's available each, every two years for you to sign up and to dig in and learn. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to pay the price that is to be paid And yet it is such a small price for the priceless gift of eternity with Jesus Christ. You don't understand why your circumstances crush you the way they do. You don't even want to talk about facing the sins that you're agreeing with. The sins that you refuse to address because you enjoy it just a little too much to let go of it. So in many ways you avoid small group situations. And I'm not saying this is all of you. I don't say this to condemn anyone. But I've seen it throughout my life. People who avoid uncomfortable situations. 
They can sit down and have a conversation about basketball, but if you sit down and have a conversation about the things of Christ, they get nervous. They get convicted. Why are you running from that? Are you willing to call sin, sin? Are you willing to face the pain of doing that? To attain the priceless gift of eternity with Jesus Christ. And to be able to, in the meantime, walk a victorious life. I'm not promising you by any means that your circumstances will go away, but I promise you that you will be equipped to handle them better. God loves you. He doesn't want to crush you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He doesn't want to embarrass you. He wants to bless you. He wants to show you mercy. He wants to show you his love. He wants to lift you up. And when you're running from your sin, when you're running from God and holding on to your sin, you're costing yourself dearly. And again, I don't tell you these things this morning to make you feel guilty. And I tell you that just because you confess the sin one time, it doesn't mean that the temptation is going to go away, that you're not going to struggle with it anymore. I'll go ahead and tell you what I was struggling with last night. I think I've shared with you guys before about my struggle in the past with food. You remember the story I shared about the Subway cookie soon after I got here? When I sat down at a restaurant, I used to struggle terribly with, I want to eat what I order. And last night, we went to a restaurant, and my wife lovingly asked if, if I would be interested in sharing a steak with her. I didn't want to. And for a couple minutes, I let myself waller in that. And for the next 15 minutes, I wallowed in the fact that I wallowed in that. We have real struggles. Some of them are embarrassing, like the one I just shared with you. Who cared if I only got two-thirds of a steak rather than a whole steak? I was miserably full. How many, I mean, I was holding on to my right to have that steak. What did I cost myself? You're holding on to your right to whatever sin you're holding on to because you think it's going to pay you back and it's only going to destroy you it's only going to cause you to live in misery challenge you this morning to be willing to call sin sin to be willing to step up and you don't have to share embarrassing stories like I did this morning but as you obtain the freedom of addressing your sin And you may struggle with the sin for years. But God will be faithful to give you the power to overcome it when you keep resting in Him and trusting Him. I've gotten a little off my outline this morning and I hope I haven't rambled too much. But I pray that you understand the beauty of letting go. The beauty of surrendering your life completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what seems like a very high cost to you is, is such a small price for the priceless gift of a relationship and eternity with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. God, our struggles are real.
And you know those struggles, God. Lord, you know in each of our lives that the sin issues that we're holding on to, the selfishness, the pride, the fear of embarrassment. You know the lies that Satan has told us to help us hold on to those things, Father. God, we, see, we think that, that it's going to cost us so much to let go of those things. But Lord, help us truly to understand the priceless gift that will be given us, the, the gift that you gave us by the ultimate sacrifice of sending your son to walk on this earth with us, Father, to die and to be resurrected in victory over that sin nature. God, let no one go away from this place feeling condemned this morning, Lord. Let them go away feeling hope and knowing that there is hope, that there is power, that there is a way to live life as overcomers, Father. And know it's not easy. But you are there. You are that anchor, that solid anchor that will not move. And you will hold on to us tightly with your grace and with your love and with your mercy, Father. We thank you and we praise you for that truth, God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Take out your red hymnals, your Mennonite hymnal, and turn to hymn number 558. The red hymnal, hymn 558. 